Welcome to the Parenting Cipher, where each episode will give you the tools and resources to help your child thrive in school and in life. Please rate and review this podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. And also hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Parenting Cipher. And today we have Dr. Lauren McClinney Rosenstein, whose passion for educating, advocating, and bringing awareness to dyslexia at the domestic and international levels began in the elementary classrooms of private schools serving students with language based learning disabilities. In her drive to serve, she has created the Think Dyslexia platform. Look, guys, I'm telling you, I was all over it. And it is so, <laughs> it is so awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so as you can tell by Think Dyslexia, that is the conversation today. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, like, I'm so ready because I have been wanting to have this conversation for so long. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me on your platform. I am very excited to have this conversation. Also, too, to just keep bringing awareness and education to the Black community. I mean, we're such an underserved population, and it's our time to educate each other and just keep spreading the word so we can change the narrative. That's what I like to say. Let's change the narrative. Narrative. Let's do it. And you have to have information to change the narrative. You do. You really do. So with that being said, the first question I have for Lauren because right, I'm impressed, is that when you hear specific learning disorder reading, what do you think? Are you thinking dyslexia? Or are you thinking yeah. it's what it is? <laughs> so that to me is a loaded question. So I'm going to let the audience know a little bit about where I'm coming from before I answer that question. So I started off my career in a non-traditional sense. So I graduated from Syracuse University and I was ready to just seize the special <laughs> education world. And I was like, yes. I landed my first job at a private dyslexic school. I had no idea where that would take me. I had no idea what that meant. I just knew I was in, if you know Syracuse, it's cold, it's a tundra, and I wanted somewhere warm, and I moved to Atlanta. (laughs) So I said, hey, I'm young in my 20s, have no responsibilities, let's move to Atlanta, let's see what this journey is going to be all about. And boy, did that journey show me a lot. And so I learn what dyslexia was. And I realized about six months into my career, why didn't I learn about this in graduate school? I'd never even heard of the, I mean, I've heard of the word dyslexia, but like that wasn't even in the vernacular of the reading methods course. So that was 11 years ago. And so when I was in public school, because I've worked in two specialized private schools. So I worked in one in Atlanta, and then I worked at a very, I won't use names, but I worked at a specialized private school in Washington, DC. That's in a very (laughs) exclusive area. (laughs) And then I also worked in Howard County Public Schools. So if you're in the Maryland, D.C. area, you know Howard County. I've worked in Howard County Public Schools. That was when I would see specific learning disabilities slapped on these IEPs. And I said, why doesn't it just say dyslexia or why doesn't it just say dysgraphia or dyscalculia? And so I would be at these IEP meetings and it would be twofold. Parents would say, well, I did outside testing and my kid has dyslexia. And then you would see like my team leader cringing, like, you know, we don't say those words at the IEP table. But then on the other hand, you would have teachers when I'm case managing and they'd be like, well, what does this mean? How do I teach this child? And I would say the running joke was, 
what's so specific about it if they're not specific about it? Like, what's the specificity? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what right. is the specificity? So if it's specific learning disability, is this a secret? Can we talk about what the specificity is? And so that was when I started kind of advocating a little bit. I had to do it carefully because I realized it was a taboo word. You could not say dyslexia because every reading specialist in the county had everything that needed to, you know, help these kids learn and progress, but it wasn't happening. Kids were still like illiterate. Kids were not getting Mm -hmm. it. They weren't having the comprehension skills. So for me, that's a loaded question. I know what it means. And I feel like I want my teachers to feel empowered to know what that means. But it's not just about knowing. It's about what are you going to do with that? So if I tell you when I used to co-teach eighth grade math, well, this child has dyscalculia, my math teacher is going to say, cool, what does that mean? So now they don't even know how to support the kid. They just know what the specificity is. So for me, it's a legal vague term. Let's just be vague. Let's slap it on there. Hey, you're getting your IEP. What's the problem? But are the services really provided appropriately? And that's the real question. Are they being tailored? Lauren, I was talking before and I was telling her when my son got the specific learning disorder reading diagnosis, I was like, okay, like, what does that mean? But I actually spoke to a psychiatrist and she said, when you go in that meeting, make sure you tell them dyslexia. Make sure that you make them embrace it. And I got pushed back and she said this, Lauren, you're going to laugh. Well, dyslexia is just seeing letters backwards. So I went in. I said, <laughs> well, no. I said, that's the optical component of dyslexia. I was like, but if you really want to be technical, I was like, you know, the Greek word dis means lack of. I said, but the diagnosis itself is lack of phonemic awareness. I said, that's the base of it. Right. I was like, so with that being said, then I went on to talk about dysgraphia. I was like, well, that's stuff dyslexia. That child can read however the reading. So I went in and by the time I finished, she was like, oh, well, I didn't know that. And we could kind of look at some things. So I kept saying Orton Gilliam. So for everyone who doesn't know, when it comes to dyslexia, that is the program mm-hmm. that really helps children who have a specific learning disorder, mm-hmm. reading diagnosis, or dyslexia. And I just kept pushing. And then Good. I started digging. Yes. This is the, so this, I'm linked to the next question. So I started digging. And when I was digging, I found something very interesting. What'd you find? So, <laughs> the was the reading intervention programs that public schools are using are Orton Gillingham based. Right. However, they are not using them in the way that they're supposed to. So for instance, I think one of the programs they were using for my son, because I, I went into this by research, it was supposed to be used for between 30 and 50 minutes, five days a week. Mm-hmm. However, on his IEP, it only said he got reading intervention two days a week for mm-hmm. 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was like, okay. But I, when I was doing all my research, I was like, but it was very consistent in our black neighborhoods. The programs they're using are Orton Gillingham based. So then I was thought to myself, so using a dyslexic program, are you testing the kids for dyslexia? Right. You've said a lot of information (laughs) that is valid. (laughs) So I definitely want to parse that out for a bit. So Orton Gillingham, I want to say it's actually, if you have true Orton Gillingham tutoring and interventions, it is not a program. It is an approach. So Mm. Orton Gillingham is uh, the gold standard. So let me kind of break this down for you all listening, especially in the Black community. This is really not talked about at all. There are very few people of color in the academy. So let's explain this. Orton Gillingham, there were two people 
Samuel Orton and Anna Gillingham, this is like 100 years ago. They created this methodology together. He was, I believe, a neuroscientist, and she, I think, was a teacher or a speech-language pathologist. I have to double-check that. But anyway, they created this approach to help dyslexic learners read and write, and it's a multi-sensory approach but it's tailored to what that child needs. So the Academy was created, I think in 1995 in Amenia, New York, upstate New York. And this is what I like to call a very elite prestigious organization. Actually, it's really not even an organization. It's a nonprofit, okay? So when I first started working at my private school in Atlanta, I was trained by an Orton Gillingham fellow, okay? So what you need to understand in the Academy is there are levels to being certified and truly certified. So, I mean, there are other levels beneath this, but the associate level is 60 hours of coursework, 50 hours of one-on-one, 50 hours of small group. Then there's certified, which is 200 hours plus coursework, fellow 300 hours. This is a lifetime effort, time, effort, and money. So I'm certified at the associate level because my school at the time paid for all of that to have the observations and all of that. Right. So I tell people that this was my dissertation before my dissertation. So the academy (laughs) is so exclusive that you can only submit your application twice a year. So back when I applied in 2014, you can apply in January or July. So if you apply in January, you don't find out if you get in until July. And I got deferred. So I did not get in the first time. And I was just like, this is two years of my career. I am getting into this academy. (laughs) And I did it. It took me another like six months to a year. But I want to specify the Orton Gillingham approach is intense and it's time intensive and there's money involved. So when you hear Orton Gillingham is a buzzword now, it's a buzzword. People are like, oh, I'm Orton Gillingham trained. You're probably not. (laughs) You're probably not. I mean, you're trained, but you're not trained through the academy. The academy is very particular in who they accept. And on top of it, as I said, there are very few people of color, very few people. I'm actually on one of the diversity committees and I'm like, there are no other black people. I just want to say this. I am like over here laughing because ironically enough, when I pushed for someone to be certified, it was the white teacher Mm -hmm. that they sent to be certified. Needless to say that they did have a diverse staff. Right. So, and, and then even with that, I came back, Lauren, and I said, what level? Right. <laughs> you know, as a parent, you can see it. level one, two, three. I don't yes. know what that means. But what I do know is I want the best level for my son. Exactly. So I kept saying, what level is she? Right. And my advocacy for that, what ended up happening is the kids that had IEPs who had the same diagnosis, they pulled them into the class. So yeah, that's... Yeah. And so I wanted to explain that because like I said, a lot of folks don't know that. And so when people say the Orton-Gillingham program, that's an offshoot. That's not Orton-Gillingham Academy trained tutors. Mm. Practitioners is really what we're called, practitioners. So there are programs, don't get me wrong, like really, if it's done right, it can be successful. And what I always say, it's better than nothing. Because let's be honest here, if we're talking socioeconomic status as well, money can be an issue. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I myself charge a decent amount of money. So if we are struggling to, you know, find tutors that are certified, they're going to cost a pretty penny. And that's hard, you know, Mm -hmm. to find that lucrative income to be like, why can't the public school give my child what they need? Now I need to go pay extra while I'm working. I mean, it's a hot mess. 
It is. Because even with my advocacy, I ended up like, like Lauren saying, it was pricey. When I tell people, I don't know how I did it, guys, but I literally was paying $1,000 a month wow. for my son to do a program called Spell Read. Yes. Which is organic based because he was two years behind and emotionally and mentally it was yep. affecting him. The social emotional piece you cannot ignore. Whole child approach. Whole child approach. Yeah. So it is pricey. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, and like I said, there are programs out there. I know some teachers are IMSE trained. That's a multi-sensory. I forgot what the full acronym stands for, but if you type in IMSE, you can find a website, you'll see it. I mean, this is actually what school districts are paying for because I personally feel it's cheaper. And the academy doesn't really outsource their fellows. And there's a lot of controversy around it, honestly. Bottom line is literacy is a civil right. Like learning to read and write is a civil right. So why is this such a fight? And I know we'll get into that, but this is why I do what I do. And I'm not dyslexic. My children are not dyslexic, but I was diagnosed with ADHD in college. And I've said this before in other interviews. And that was really the reason I went more into special ed because I was a psychology major undergrad. My first master's was elementary. And I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And then, you know, Syracuse tacted like two for one, add on 20 extra credits. And, you know, then you can do special ed. And that was where my career took me. And I realized I connected better with the kids because I struggled in school. And so, you know, dyslexia landed in my lap, you know, my first job and that just became my passion. And now this is what I'm fighting for because it's ridiculous. I mean, these kids, they need to have the confidence and they need to have the resources and the teachers that know how to teach them. And the parents need to know what they don't know, <laughs> you know, we need to right. educate, right. advocate. Yeah, we have to know as parents, you know, like you step into an IP meeting, someone says they're going to help your child. Then yeah. they start asking you certain questions. You don't know the answer. I always say as a cultural default, there are buttons that we have mm-hmm. as black parents that when we are, our confidence gets shaken, we back down and we let someone else take the lead because we just don't have enough foundational information to actually start asking questions. And then as you were saying, it is expensive to do Orton Gilliam and they are using other programs because you tell we answered that question because <laughs> it's cheaper. Yes. But even with that being said, what is the level Right. What are these teachers certified? I mean, folks listening out there, if you find people's Instagram and Twitter pages, I'm more of an Instagram person and it says, OG teacher trained, ask them, who is your fellow in the academy? You know, even if you're not in the academy, I still think you'll trip people up. You'd be like, who trained you? Who's your fellow? And you can find this on the Orton Gillingham website. You can always trace who is in the academy to a fellow. So someone does not know what that means. They're not Orton Gillingham trained. I mean, they're trained, but they're not trained through the Academy, which is the gold star standard. Gold star. Right. And then (laughs) once again, go back to my story. The young lady got her certification. And I think like a year or two years later, she left. She left because she went on to the next levels. Of course. Right. And then that goes back to the question when it comes to the allocation of services. Right. Resources for our children. What does that look like? One of my peeves was when he got the diagnosis, nothing changed as far as his reading intervention. Like mm-hmm. same program, same bad channel. And I'm kind of like, so I got I had this official diagnosis, but, but nothing changed. Yeah. And it's not working. And you know, I will say that the purpose, the sole point of being in special ed is to actually give the kids what they need to support their learning disabilities to then service them out. So if we are keeping kids in the system, we are not doing our job. Mm. I mean, we're not doing our job. 
The whole goal is to say, if you got an IEP in first grade and, you know, take learning disabilities like autism, that is a neurodiversity. I mean, just like dyslexia and ADHD, but that is something depending on, you know, the severity. And I hate to use that word, but you know what I mean? It's a spectrum that you might need supports Mm -hmm. out of school. Maybe you need to know how to find a career and all of those things. But if we're not giving kids that internal advocacy to know I can be independent, I can do this, I know how to speak up and say this doesn't work, this works, then what Mm -hmm. are we doing? We're keeping kids in the system and we're keeping the brown and black kids in the system. And then they end up in jail. Like, it's just, what what are we doing here? Like, let's name it for what it is. What's the big elephant in the room? You know, I mean, you see, I'm getting worked up. (laughs) It's the school to prison pipeline. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. It really is. We have provided all of the resources for them to be successful. No, you haven't. Right. No, you haven't. Because if you go into a predominantly black school versus a predominantly white school and you look at the level of service, it is totally different. It's totally different. And that's one of my keys, like one of my things that just irritates me is that as a parent, you're advocating, but you don't know what you're advocating for. Exactly. You you know, something's missing and you know, somebody's withholding something in some way, Mm -hmm. but you Mm -hmm. don't know exactly what it is. And ironically enough, it's been so many years since I did the research, but basically if your child's receiving IEP, what they're worth, their seat is worth is comparable to a private school education. Why is that something that you have to fight so hard for? Public schools, that's not what you do. You're pulling kids out of class. Mm-hmm. By the time they're in fifth grade, they're done with that. <laughs> that's another conversation because if inclusion is done right, you should not be pulled out. And that is, I feel, a teacher prep issue. So if you're taught to know how to differentiate and teach. So secondary teachers, <laughs> I love my secondary teachers, okay? So I've been in middle school now. This is my sixth year in middle school. I did four years in elementary school. But in public school, they will come at this approach like, oh, well, those are your kids. Like, oh, I'm an English teacher. And I'm like, these are our kids, okay? And we need to learn how to teach them in this room. There should not be go pull out Lil Johnny and whomever else and you read them this whatever while we're doing. I mean, it's just inclusion is all encompassing. So yes, they are mm-hmm. tired. By the time they get to middle school, they're looking at you like, why are you trying to pull me out? Or it's the other yep. way. Well, I guess I'll just get pulled out, you know, and then that impacts their social emotional. The kids are like, oh, well, so-and-so gets pulled out with Miss So-and-so because so-and-so doesn't get that. And it's just- And they fall behind in other classes. Yep. Because they missed the end. They missed the last 20 minutes. They missed the work. Yep. One of the things my son said when we decided to put him in a private school, when he did did his visit and he came out and he said, yeah, mom. He said, what I like is everybody's like me. Yes. He said, everyone is like me. And it just makes me feel more comfortable. Yes. And after that experience, because when you try to get your child admitted to a private school, even if it's a private placement, just for the audience, they have to do a visit. Yes. A shadow. And they have to do a shadow visit. And this is, oh, this is good. So I'm glad everyone, I'm glad we brought this up. This is good. So I tried to get my son into a school that literally was dyslexic. That was their main component is that we work with children who have dyslexia. He went to his visit. He was happy. They denied him. And this is what they said, guys. So this is really good. They said that he was too far behind to be accepted to their program. And that was the catalyst for me to get private tutoring. Because imagine you're trying to get your child in a school that's specifically for children with dyslexia. Yeah. So that means everybody, I hate to say this, but everybody there is, in my mind, behind. Right. But this is when we start talking about privilege. Yeah. 
And so we're talking about privilege. So this is most white people have their children early diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So even though they have a have a diagnosis, they are functioning at a different level. If my son is functioning at a zero, their child at the same age is functioning at a two. Yes. So they're saying we can't remediate him. So what are your options? So this is important for everyone to know because one, if you're trying to get private placement, there's some schools your child will not be able to go to because the public school is not actually giving your child enough services for them to be at a point where they can be remediated. There are schools, this is interesting too, there are schools that will remediate. However, I found that the ones who will remediate your child do not take public funding. Yeah, and that's definitely another conversation as well because the school I told you I worked in in D.C. took public funding for a specific county with most Black folks. (laughs) And it was interesting because... The school was placed in a very affluent part of D.C. where you had parents Mm -hmm. who could pay that tuition. But the families that couldn't pay, there had to be, I'm guessing, I didn't know the behind the scenes, but, you know, this was six, seven years ago, probably had an IEP. So you had to have an IEP through the county. You had to have proof that the public school system could not do what that child needed. Mm -hmm. So then the county had to then fund that specific school's mission for that kid. So the whole thing, it is very interesting. And, you know, I want to touch on what you said about the zero functioning versus two. So in my own experience, I have done, I don't know how many interviews on my YouTube channel, and it's been with professionals and it's been with people sharing their dyslexia story. Now, I will Mm -hmm. say I don't have the stats in front of me, but out of, I would say probably 100% Maybe that's too hot. 98% of the white folks that I've interviewed, (laughs) they were diagnosed (laughs) at six, seven, you know, like they had the resources. But then when I think about black folks, I mean, I did an interview with a former NFL player and I think he's 29 and I think he was just diagnosed and he grew up in Detroit. I mean, he said, I grew up in the hood. Like I was just doing bad things. But when he got this diagnosis just recently, he said it made sense. And now he's on this quest for knowledge and hunger. I have a friend in Ghana and her story was heartbreaking because it's different over in Ghana. And she said everyone gave up on her. Her father was like a principal or a you know high level in the village. He gave up on her. And she said she got diagnosed at 30. And you know where she got diagnosed? In Switzerland. Where? In Switzerland. So, I mean, it's these stories where it's just like, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And it's like, we need to educate our community. I mean, there are too many stories like this where it really is a privilege, education, lack of understanding. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's so much. And when I was doing my research for my son, I was just like digging in. And I was like, well, okay, so basically there are, we're going to talk about this in a minute, guys. So for everyone your child might be dyslexic. You don't know what right. the key factors are. But when I was doing my research, one of the things that stood out for me is even with speech therapy, but also reading was the timing of testing. Mm-hmm. Even in a public school setting or a private school setting, the timing of testing, the of statistics state that white students are test earlier mm-hmm. as a standard versus yeah. the black kids. And with that being said, just to add this piece in, how are our children being looked at? 
is the behavioral part superseding the education part. I found that when I have to advocate, especially with kids with ADHD, they want to focus on the behavioral part versus the other pieces. The root cause. This is a little tip. The root cause. Listen, for everyone, if a school system tells you we've tested your child, ask them what test did you administer? You should. Absolutely. Because what they will do is they will, I like to call it spot checking. I don't know what the academic word is. But for me, it's spot checking. That means that you've decided what my child has and you only test them for that one thing. Mm-hmm. You have to ask for a psychoeducational full evaluation. Full battery. And then full battery. And then even with that, they will still test yep. you and will try to put IEPs, like put goals in place that the academic goals really don't make sense Mm because they're not really helping your child make progress. They will avoid actually creating behavioral goals. Now, just for the audience, for you to really understand, for us, sometimes behavior means, oh, my child is bad. No, a behavioral goal is to help your child learn how to accommodate themselves. If your Mm -hmm. child has ADHD and they can't sit still, Mm -hmm. They're supposed to help them make progress with staying still by the child learning how to identify what do they need. Do they need a rubber band on their chair? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do they need to have like um, the pop bubbles? Do they need to have something on their wrist? It helps them be able to make progress for their adult lives. Right. And that's something as a culture, when they create our IEPs, it's almost like, I'm just going to say it. I'm not saying it's done on purpose. We're just going to talk about the system itself is to slowly get your child with behavioral. And next thing you know, you have like this kid, your child who's like sweet and nice. And next thing you know, it's like a ping here, a ping there. And you're not understanding what's happening. Oh, your child was was there is very disruptive. Well, I mean, he has ADD and I had asked you if you could help him moderate his behavior, you know, how he feels. And they're kind of like ignoring you. So that's mm-hmm. something important for you to understand. It's like when they say they're testing your child, you have to make sure they're testing them all the way. 100% everything you said, I agree with. And I want to just add on to that. So with the IEP process, so I will say that I have some digital products, got to push the digital products in my, push um, and push it, girl. <laughs> in my teachers pay teachers store. So if you're following me on Instagram, it's think dyslexia and you can go to the link in my bio. So I actually have a special education workbook and I break down the 10 steps Okay, because we typically don't know. It's it's almost like when you think of something that's not your thing, like if someone's talking in law jargon, you're just like, I don't know. And I think what typically happens psychologically to anyone is if you don't understand something, people throwing things at you, the anxiety just heightens, you know, and then it comes out in different ways culturally. Okay. And so I feel like this breaks down the 10 steps and then you can jot down notes. So what I would advise, because you talked about, first of all, the full battery. Yes. So two things about that. The school can say we are not testing your child unless there's a reason. So this is a process. You can't go to your public school and say, I think my kid has dyslexia. Test them. They have to have evidence from the gen ed teachers. They have to have evidence that there actually is, this is awful. They have to be failing significantly for them to feel like, okay, yeah, we need to help them, which is so backwards. So if there's enough so data for that, 
that's when they can say, well, we'll look at testing. So I want to say this, that means that if they agree to it, they have 90 days or 60 days. Okay. That's a lot of mm -hmm. wasted time, right? So that's enough time to be like, got to get the psychologist to do the assessment, have to get the special educator to do the educational assessment, depending on what they're assessing could be the problem. You might need an occupational therapist. You might need a speech language pathologist. So you're already seeing that this is a huge process. Now, when and if you go through that whole process, this is where we as a community need to understand this is a daunting process. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. You don't have to approve that IEP. You don't. If they're writing out things that you're just like, wait a second, I don't know what this means. And you're asking questions and they're, you know, hemming and hawing. If it doesn't feel right, don't approve it. You know your child. You may not be an educator. You may not be well-versed in the jargon to know what this means and that means and whatever. But this is your child. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to approve it. Get a second opinion. Go to resources. So this whole thing, it's stressful. And I just want those yeah. of you out there listening to know, like, I'm definitely a support. I've lived it through the professional experience. And by the time the kids came to middle school, you could just see the exhaustion in some of these parents' faces. Or you could see yep. shock, like, what do I have to do? <laughs> and then if you have the privilege, if you have the money, some parents will say, I'm going to get a second opinion. And they pay outside testing. Now, outside testing, yep. depending on where you live, could range between twenty-five dollars to $5,000. And I will tell you, there you. are some people who do take insurance, but I would be very wary because I had a situation that happened last year <laughs> where a black family, okay? They didn't say it, but I could read between the lines, couldn't afford the testing. So they found insurance and this white psychologist, I mean, I asked all the right questions and I think this older <laughs> gentleman was not happy that I was asking him questions. And basically he just gave the test of whatever the parents thought their child had. And I'm just like, we didn't get teacher rating scales. Like the whole thing was a botched thing. And it, it turned out that I was like, no, we are not using this. Type. It's not legit. That happened to me. <laughs> I mean, I am over the thing. It's like a scam. It's that's like, why I'm no. over here. I'm over here laughing because that's how my daughter got misdiagnosed. And what was mm -hmm. so funny at the time, my daughter, she was going to a prestigious all girls school. Okay. And I just had a hard time, like the whole time from second grade all the way up to eighth grade, I kept saying something was off, right. but I didn't know what to ask specifically. So they would tell me, oh, all the girls are developing differently. Oh, we don't do that, which I don't know what, what we don't do. But, right, right. Um, <laughs> what are you talking about? Okay. Maybe I'm You're like, being, am I crazy? You know, am I crazy? Maybe I'm crazy. <laughs> so I went and did the insurance. It's a Lawrence speaking to it. I went and did the insurance. I came back and I gave it to the school and they were like, oh no, we don't think this is right. This isn't really speaking to how she's showing up. And what ended up happening is they did not give her a seat for high school, but they blessed her exit hmm. and the investment that they had made in her because she was a scholarship student. Okay. Is that they paid for her to go to their psychologist to get diagnosed. Okay. And when okay. I looked up her fees, I said, ooh, child, it was like $3,500. <laughs> I said, oh, thank you. Thank you, scholarship. But when she came back, she was like, she has ADHD. The original diagnosis from the doctor from my insurance, they were like ADD. They were like, no, she's ADHD and she has dysgraphia. And the main thing, the reason why she was not doing well was not so much her ADHD it was her dysgraphia. That right. was the thing that was hindering her the most. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, 
Yes. Can we talk about this graph? Yes, <laughs> yes, let's. Yeah, so here's what's important. And I found this in my research. So I've always worked with kids that had dysgraphia, but you know, I like to put out resources for my community and I'm a researcher. So I'm like, let me really dig in. There are five types of dysgraphia. I don't know if you knew that. Really? Yes. I didn't know yes. that. My daughter doesn't know that. I tell her. <laughs> so there are five types in the digital product store, Teachers Pay Teachers. And so let me tell you what the five types are. So there is acquired. That's more of if there's like a trauma issue. So, you know, if you had a mm -hmm. stroke or anything like that, typically you probably see that later in life. Or I guess if kids have concussions or whatever the case might be, you're not born with that. That happens over time. There is developmental. That's the biggest one. So developmental, if you think of like incorrect spelling, spelling size, like slow labor intensive writing. So that's more developmental that you see. Then there's motor, right? So motor is like poor handwriting. I mean, almost like illegible. You're like, what is this? And so slow, like finger tapping. So, you know, really probably like that pincer grip, you know, really. And also too, those of you listening out there, if your kids are like, I'm just so tired. I'm tired after writing my name. And we all do this, you know, we'll be like, well, I used to write all my papers handwriting. Now you can type and all this. Like we should not do that with our children because even though we did have to handwrite everything before we had computers to type up, that's actually a part of how their brain's wired. And that's where, depending on how young the kids are, OT comes in with the fine motor and gross motor skills. Then there's spatial dysgraphia. So you want to think of drawing and handwriting again, yet appropriate spacing. So I think of this when I taught elementary school, right, where I would have my kids and if they were dysgraphic and dyslexic, they had a hard time understanding their left and right. So whenever we would take out paper, I had a song that's like the holes go on the left, the holes go on because the, the kids would always turn paper <laughs> the wrong way and then write. The, and I'm just like, oh, gosh. So, you know, the spacing where, you know, if you think of loose leaf paper, there's college rule, which is like real thin. And then there's like the bigger paper for more of the primary age kids. So knowing how to get in between those lines and appropriately space and draw like all of that. And then the last one, I feel I see this more with the older kids is linguistics. Mm -hmm. So this is more of the language processing of think about when you're in secondary, middle school, high school, and teachers are like, take out your notes. You have to take down notes. So they're talking. And I've seen this. I've seen my eighth graders. They will literally be at their desk. And I know you guys are listening. You can't see me. But they're looking down at their paper, looking up, looking down, looking up, and they cannot process it. They cannot process it. And so a good accommodation for that is giving them the notes so they yes. can listen and I, just watch you. So those are the five types. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm looking at people like, why is she over here her laughing? I am laughing because Lauren is speaking to me. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> that is my... So I have like grown so much as a person and as That's a parent. does, right? <laughs> but in the lane of... There are things that you see that you don't have context for. Yeah. So you were speaking to me when you said it takes them forever to write. Ever. Yeah. But one of the main components of her actually not receiving a C was she tested poorly. She tested poorly. I'm laughing because it's like when you look at some things you said to your kids, you're like, oh, God, you were so ignorant. But she would write notes and I would like read her notes and then I would look at the book and I'm like, why are you making stuff up? Like, how did you get this from this? And I would say that all the time, guys, I would be like, why are you making stuff up? 
But and she's probably feeling bad. Like, I'm not, mom. I'm doing my Oh, man. Look, she's like 22 now. And it took a minute because I was consistently like apologizing for some of the things that I would say. So it took her forever. Right. So one of the things that was a trigger. So listen, everybody. One of the things for me was a trigger to start asking questions. She was second grade. Was like you telling me it takes twenty minutes to do this assignment, but my daughter sits there for an hour, and yeah. I'd be like, "Girl, why are you having a blind moment?" Because she would, because her ADHD, everything would stop. The pen is still positioned on the paper, and she's just sitting there. I'm like, "Girl, why?" Because I'm just gonna show her, show you everybody. I'm like, "Why are you having a Barbie moment?" Right? <laughs> so I would, I would say to her, and it wasn't like, and it, but as soon as she got the diagnosis, it was like this light clicked. Yeah, and I want everyone to hear this part. From a child's perspective, she got her diagnosis. She said, well, all my friends had that. And uh, I can't understand why I'm not going to be able to continue when they have the same thing. And I had to have a real moment with her. And I said, you know what, baby? Unfortunately, they are in a community. So rich, white, privileged community. They test their kids early and yeah. they know what to look for. I was like, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't yes. know what to ask for. And not to say that it's too late. I said, but the rig- it was rigorous. When I say rigorous, yeah. listen to me, guys. Imagine a eight-year-old with a backpack the size of a college student mm. that triples yeah. for high school. Right. And they were like, she's not going to succeed. She literally is at the point where clinically depressed. Oh, see, because yeah. Because she's Old highly child. aware, highly aware that something is wrong. Like she would come to me and she was like, I feel like I'm letting you down. Oh, God. Because I don't know what's wrong with me because I know I can do better. I'm telling her like... You know, it's okay. And she's like, oh, no, you're just my mom. So, you know, what you yeah. say doesn't matter. And she was like, just give me the drugs. Just give me the drugs and I will be okay. And I'm like, baby, it's not about the drugs. We haven't created the space for you to remediate mentally. Right. The drugs is going to be a crutch for you. Imagine your child's about to go to high school. She's 14 years old. Right. And we don't have a base. Right. So I went through parental guilt. Because mm. it was like, I knew, I knew, I knew. And even for me to get to that point, I went on WebMD. Like, I had no point of reference. And then even when she got dysgraphia, I just focused on the part where we were talking about the notes. Because I was like, oh, that's why she don't test well. But now she's 22. Yeah. What she learned to do. So this is that part where Lauren and I were talking about the IEPs. And mm-hmm. I don't know if we said it, but we were talking about it before. We were talking about our communities always talked out of IEPs between like elementary and middle school because they're using failure as the marker. So in my daughter's case, she went to a public school. This is important, guys. She went to a public school with a private school education. So with that being said, she's already ahead of the game. She's in high school and they're reteaching the stuff that she's already mastered. Right. So they would not give her an IEP. They said there's no deficit. So when we would advocate for notes, they would be like, she doesn't need notes. What she ended up doing is she made friends. She's smart. She would make friends with people who took good notes. And then she would study with them. But listen right. to my story. If she didn't have an awareness of a diagnosis, right? she really be like, I need to make a friend with somebody who takes good notes. Right. I mean, there's power in a diagnosis. I feel like as a community, there is because we know that it could be a trick bag for our community because they want to utilize it in a certain way. I always say IEP is a safeguard. Mm-hmm. It's a safeguard if you know how to wield it. If you know mm-hmm. how to wield it, it can be a safeguard because always, unfortunately for our community, you have to humanize your child. So you got to bring them in. I remember yeah. one of the goals when we got that specific learning disorder reading. They were like, oh, he's going to read with a peer. I didn't argue with them. You know what I said? I said, well, imagine you can't read. You don't talk well. 
you're being bullied and you want him to sit with a friend and admit that he can't read. Mm. And they looked at, oh, we're going to take that off. <laughs> yeah, you got to think through those accommodations and those goals and objectives. I mean, yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. And I think that there's so much power in this conversation we're having. And I hope this is resonating because there really is a lot of work that we have to do to educate our community. Actually, and I know this was something that we were going to touch on and I'm going to bring this up. So like basically some things that parents can do to support their children, but not even just their children, but like themselves. And so this was actually a post I put out and I found, I said, oh, this is appropriate. So I say, learn everything about the learning disability, like what you did. Even if you sense something, I mean, the internet is a powerful tool. Type in like, my kid is having trouble with rhyming words or whatever you think is like an issue and see what comes up. Because maybe you don't know what the disability is, or maybe you do. As parents, we want nothing but the best for our children. We're going to do anything it takes. I mean, anything. So educate yourself. Learn about that learning disability. And this one is a doozy, but we talked about it. Understand the special education process. Don't think Mm -hmm. the second you say there's something wrong and, you know, Miss Jones down the hall has got your back, that that's it. Like, you have to keep (laughs) at it. Even if you're at the table three, four times, It's a journey. It's a process. And at any point, you can call a meeting. You don't have to accept those IEP changes. I mean, there's so much involved. Actually, I'm going to give you four things, not three. So network with others. I feel like as a culture and in general, we tend to, if there's something we're uncomfortable, we don't want to talk about it. We don't Mm want to reach out. But as a Black community, we have to do that. So if there's something that you're like, hey, I'm noticing this or you know, hey, are you noticing this with this teacher? Whatever it is, like network, talk to other moms, talk to other parents, network. And then the last one is you want to partner with the school. So I understand sometimes we might get angry. I understand we might sit at this table and think that these white people are racist and all this. But I like to come from the angle of, you know, we understand systemic racism. We see where our country is today, but I want to come from a place of positive intent. As a black woman, as a black mother, the last thing I want to be seen is as an angry black woman, but Mm -hmm. I can get there if I need to, but I don't want to. And so I want to make sure that we know at the end of the day, we're fighting for the same thing. And even if they don't admit it, you want to convince them we're fighting for my child's success, my child's advocacy. So we are here as a Mm -hmm. partnership. And that's kind of how I view it because, I mean, I've been at those contentious meetings and, you know, it's like, how do we turn the temperature down? How do we speak the language of, you know, this family who maybe their English, like we had translators sometimes at meetings because the parents didn't know what was going on. So those are my four things. So definitely learn, educate. I love them. Special education process. Know, you know, learn everything you can network and view the school as a partnership. Yeah, I like to say create a team around your child. Yes. Create yes. a team with your child. And what Lauren just said, being positive. But part of that, this is, this is an important piece, is don't step into a space as though someone is withholding from yes. your child. Step into the space of, I need to enroll this team into my vision. My vision is my child. So how do I do that? You speak to who you are as a parent. Like Lauren and I are talking about, you have to have the resources education, but that's actually more so for you. 
Mm-hmm. So you can be confident and show up instead of withdraw. Yes. But when you come in and you're speaking it, you don't have to go in and speak their language. You come in from the angle of humanize your child, draw them into what a day in the life of your child is when you're looking at these IEP goals, right? And really kind of like touch on their humanity. Unfortunately for us as a community, and I just had like this great psychiatrist on my show. And she was saying, you know, unfortunately for us, we are actually seen as one person. Like how everyone acts is how they see us. So one of the things that we have to do, unfortunately, and it's not right, we have to show the humanity. So my son is not just some little black boy. Right. And I actually send out letters at the beginning of the year because trust, unless it's a special education school and even still, you still need to write a letter at the beginning of the year, introduce it to your child. Yes. But at the end of my letter, I say, welcome to Team Massar or welcome to Team Xavier. Right. And it's another important piece. You create a team around your child, but what happens when everybody's not a team player? You have the option of asking for people to be off your team. We have to understand that you are a parent, right? But you are the person that has power. Yes. And do not disempower yourself by backing off because you're intimidated because you don't know what anyone is talking about. (laughs) No, I hear you. I 100% agree with that. And I hope that this conversation will definitely give parents out there that push, that motivation to be like, oh, okay, I got this. I got this. I got this. <laughs> but Lord, it's been so great talking to you. Yes. But I want you to share with the parents how to connect with you and your services that you provide. Like sure. you already talked about some of your products, but I'm telling you guys, like just literally, you just go on her blog. It's awesome. Thank you. Yes. So Instagram, like I said, that's my jam. So think dyslexia. You will find resources. I have a YouTube channel, which I'm going to be putting out some posts about that. So each week you'll see some videos of interviews. Actually, one of the ladies I told you about in Ghana, that's one that is worth a watch. So I have a YouTube channel, Think Dyslexia Network. And yeah, so I have a Teachers Pay Teacher store that has some digital products. So the special education workbook, types of dyslexia, types of dysgraphia, types of dyscalculia. That one was an mm. interesting one creating, actually. I learned oh, a lot. Come back, talk about that. <laughs> yes. And some other cool stuff. I also am in the process of creating some courses. So I do have a course coming down the pike about understanding dyslexia. And I plan to create one about dysgraphia, dyscalculia. And so basically think dyslexia. We are now an incorporated LLC. So I'm very excited to basically launch this business and to help as many. I mean, the mission of think dyslexia is really to bring awareness and understanding and resources to 195 countries in the world. And it's a lofty mission, but you you know what? If we have conversations like this, we can get that ball rolling. And also it's helpful to have a person of color who's educated and knows how to speak to the community so we can really band together and change the narrative. You're doing such awesome work. You don't need me to tell you that, but let me tell you guys, I have been wanting to have this conversation forever, but I was really clear with myself that I wanted to speak to a black person and it was really hard. It was really, really hard. Like, ironically enough, you know, I updated my Twitter and I, <laughs> I, I love it. Lauren somehow. And I also wanted to say this. So, yes, her products, it says teacher, but also remember parents. parents. Yes, yes. You are yes. the teacher of your child. Exactly. Don't they be like, oh, it's a teacher. No, you are a teacher. Yes. The first teacher, the consistent teacher. That's true. Everybody Very else true. is a revolving door. Very true. Very true. Thank <laughs> you for that. We are going to 
close out the show, but I always have to ask everybody, what is the song? Because it's the cypher. What are you adding to the cypher as far as music that really gets you pumped up and makes you feel positive? Yeah, so I love Sierra Level Up. I just feel like every time I hear that song, I just get leveled up, you know? <laughs> just I don't know. It just, <laughs> it just puts me in the groove. I mean, I ran track in high school and college, and I would always listen to Jay-Z and Kanye, and that would always get me going. But right now, I just feel like I like my women empowerment and Sierra, and I love that song. That's my go-to song lately. <laughs> When I saw it and I saw everything that you were creating, I was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. You are definitely leveling up. You're definitely leveling up the entire platform and game for our community that is now in a place to empower ourselves with information and understanding that what your child is actually given is subpar. And now you can actually put a voice to what you yes. you instinctively know is missing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. So true. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please subscribe and go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a five-star review. That helps us build this community. And that's what we're all about, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. The Parenting Cypher podcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and the executive producer, myself, Jeannie Dawkins. Until next time, remember to be patient with yourself and your child.